Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, directing the TOSIC Early Cancer Therapeutics Program and co-directing the Cleveland Clinic Sarcoma Program. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Suda Arntmuth, co-director of Gynecologic Cancer Program and assistant professor of radiation oncology. She's here today to talk to us about improving the quality of care for patients with cervical cancer. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So cervical cancer, you you talked about some data you presented at the recent ASTRO meeting. Is that right? Yeah. So cervical cancer is such a devastating disease to so many women. And, you know, in this era, it should 100% be preventable. We have, you know, HPV vaccination that we know reduces the risks of dysplasia and then the subsequent development of cancer. We have uh, pap screens and HPV testing. And, you know, with early detection, we should be able to catch that dysplasia and early cancers. And if we catch it early, patients do quite well with high survival rates. But unfortunately, a lot of women, you know, still don't have, you know, don't get access to those things and ultimately end up with this, you know, devastating diagnosis with ultimately a potentially very poor prognosis. What are the biggest barriers? I mean, this is, I mean, this is frustrating, right? Because it's something that really is much more preventable than virtually any cancer we treat. Absolutely. And so, you know, certainly there's socioeconomic barriers. Are there, are there other things in play that people just don't come and get screened and they don't get vaccines and What drives this? You know, I think the vaccine question is a little bit tricky, Um, you know, in places where there's been really kind of a lot of national attention paid to this issue, like Australia. Actually, I think the first lady of Australia had an early stage cervical cancer and ultimately pushed for high rates of HPV vaccination uh, in younger people. And, you know, over the last decade or so, they've seen their dysplasia rates, you know, decrease dramatically. We haven't really had kind of that attention to the HPV vaccination, I think, in the United States. So I think that there is a little bit of a lack of overall education. I think that sometimes, you know, parents are concerned that an HPV vaccination means that their child will somehow be more sexually promiscuous in the future. So just a lot of disinformation in that space. And then I think what happens on the screening side is, you know, a lot of women after they kind of go through childbearing, their life gets really busy and they start to focus a lot of their attention on their children, their partners. And so a lot of people are missing out on the routine screening that's recommended. So often we see patients who, you know, haven't had a pap test in five years, 10 years, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and so just, I think a lot of barriers there. It looks like you've done some interesting work trying to figure out how to improve overall care for these patients. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is you know, going to be, I think, a longstanding and ongoing project because over the continuum of care for patients, you know, from the prevention side all the way through treatment, there are certainly, I think, a number of places where we can better intervene. But, you know, after taking care of cervical cancer patients, essentially over the last 10 years here at the Cleveland Clinic, I've seen just too many young women who had, you know, late diagnoses, misdiagnoses, because 
providers just weren't, you know, kind of well equipped to look for the right diagnosis or they missed things, radiologists, whatnot. And so ultimately the idea here was, can we just optimize the treatment paradigm for the patients who are coming through our system? You know, if you look at the data nationally, if patients have locally advanced cervical cancer, only about 30% of patients actually receive standard of care treatment, which is kind of shocking because treatment hasn't really changed over the last 20 years. I'm going to say more than a little shocking. That's really shocking. It's really shocking, right? And so I assumed that our numbers would be much better than that. But again, over that continuum of care, you know, we're the Cleveland Clinic and we, you know, aim to be the best. And so wanted to figure out what are the things that we can do kind of along that continuum of care to really kind of make sure that our cervical cancer patients are getting the care that they need to optimize their outcomes. Makes sense. What were some of the metrics you looked at? So a lot of this was kind of kind of emerged from some of the metrics that have come from some of the national accreditation programs in cancer. So, you know, there are two major ones that are run by the American College of Surgeons and Commission on Cancer, the National Accreditation Program in Rectal Cancer and Breast Cancer. And so kind of in the other hat that I wear, which is to take care of patients with colorectal cancer, we've seen that multidisciplinary care and that team approach can really improve patient outcomes long term. And so some of the things that they have done in that space is, you know, making sure that all patients are presented at tumor boards, all patients have pathology reviewed, you know, at the center that they're getting treated at, making sure that all patients are getting their imaging, the correct imaging prior to the initiation of treatment, using things like synoptic reports by our radiologists and our pathologists to make sure that all of the important and vital information that's necessary to make, you know, diagnostic and management decisions is there. And so those were kind of some of the metrics that we thought about, but then also specific to this population. You know, you mentioned that there are a number of socioeconomic barriers that exist in this population. And so making sure that all of our patients were being seen by a social worker or talking to a social worker very, very early on in their diagnosis so that if they had transportation or other needs, um, that we could kind of help alleviate that early. Uh, and then making sure, you know, that they were really kind of getting standard of care uh, treatments to ensure that on the treatment side of things, we were really optimizing the care that they were receiving. So we ultimately ended up with essentially 10 metrics to start out with. And in the midst of creating this program, we developed what we call a cervical cancer huddle, uh, which is an interprofessional team of people. And so that includes typically a physician, a nurse practitioner. Uh, we have social workers from our you know, many different regional sites. Uh, we have um, some research folks who join us as well. And Every Friday morning for about 10 to 30 minutes, depending on the number of patients, we get together virtually and essentially talk about every new patient who is diagnosed with cervical cancer at the Cleveland Clinic all the way through when they're starting their treatment um, with the goal of making sure that their imaging is correctly being ordered and scheduled, that they're seeing social work and kind of all of these other metrics that we've talked about. Excellent. And so... Kind of as we are starting to think of cancer programs at the Cleveland Clinic being across kind of all institutes and all locations, you mentioned regional sites. So regional site diagnosis gets included in this as well? 
Absolutely. So the GUIDE program is kind of unique in this way at the clinic because our GYN oncologists are based not only out of main campus, but they're the same providers who are at our regional hospitals as well. And so we really are a disease team that reaches across the entire Northeast Ohio Cleveland Clinic system. And so that was part of the challenge is we're seeing patients at these different locations. We're working with different radiologists, pathologists, you know, kind of all of these various team members, social workers at the different sites. And so we wanted to make sure that care was really being optimized at all of our locations and not just here at main campus. Excellent. You, you mentioned pathology a couple of times. I, it, certainly within sarcoma, pathology is massively important. Cervical cancer, again, you have different levels of dysplasia. And how important did you find so far that, in that path review here is, is important and changes diagnosis or changes approach. Um, seems like that's something that could really commonly, like out in the community, where people are reading lots and lots of things instead of just cervical cancer. How, how big a role has that played? I mean, it certainly plays a very large role. I mean, sometimes there's uh, confusion about whether it's a cervical cancer versus an endometrial cancer, especially because we're seeing higher rates of cervical adenocarcinomas. And so differentiating between those two, because they have very different management paradigms, can be really important. And then essentially management is based off of many things that we get at the time of biopsy, like is there lymphovascular space invasion? You know, how deep is this cancer? You know, and, and so all of those things ultimately can help, you know, kind of affect the management options of, is this patient a good candidate for a radical hysterectomy versus needing to go through chemo radiation? So, you know, it's vitally important. And when we think about imaging, what are the most common things that you, you see sort of are missteps? And again, you know, we have a, a lot of different people that might be listening in from different areas. And, you know, just sort of from an instructional standpoint, what do people need to be doing that you oftentimes see gets missed? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where the synoptic reports really makes a big difference because in the synoptic report, you essentially lay out all of the important pieces of information. So that's things like, you know, not only how big is a tumor and where is it located, but are the parametrial tissues involved? Is the vaginal tissue involved? How much of that vaginal tissue is involved? How deep does it go into the wall of the cervix? Um, are there lymph nodes that are involved? You know, all of these different parameters affect our treatment decision making. And so if any one of those things are missed, that can make the difference between a patient undergoing a radical hysterectomy and then requiring radiation or chemoradiation after the fact, which we know leads to increased toxicity and side effects compared to maybe just getting chemoradiation alone. And so it's really, really important. And, and that's probably the number one thing that we see is a lot of the radiologists in the community will say, oh, there's you know this size tumor in the cervix, but a lot of these other pieces are missing. And I guess it kind of goes back to pathology as well. I, I think back to, you know, bladder cancer and, you know, a diagnosis of whether it's muscle invasive or not when there's no muscle in the sample. You know, I can imagine that, you know, standardizing pathology and biopsies and things are important. Absolutely. I mean, I think ultimately standardizing these things, it just, it helps us, you know, physicians are busy and you know, having a template that's there to help remind you of what you need to include and what's going to be important for the providers who are treating patients when you're on the diagnostic side, I think can be so helpful. From a, a patient standpoint, 
you know, what kind of patient factors in terms of patient satisfaction, knowing, hey, look, I have a whole team looking over things. Do you, do you get good feedback from patients in terms of changes in care based on kind of this multidisciplinary approach? We have gotten, um, you know, a lot of really positive feedback. Um, you know, we haven't studied that kind of question directly, but, you know, I think our patients are really happy that social work is reaching out so early. We certainly have had a number of patients who would have had major delays in getting their diagnostic imaging to even get to treatment if a social worker hadn't called them and said, hey, we can help arrange transportation for you to get to that appointment. Um, or, hey, we have some financial resources that are available that are going to allow you to kind of undergo this treatment. So I think having that early intervention as well as, you know, just having a whole care team that is taking care of them, you know, patients, they see that, they feel that, um, and it's certainly very impactful to their care. I mean, I guess when we're thinking about a lot of these patients needing social work support and things, um, with the current program, um, what's involvement or maybe proposed involvement of patient navigators or sort of outreach programs, things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I was actually really heartened to hear at Astro this year that patient navigators will likely be paid for in the next iteration um, of Medicare. And so, um, you know, non-clinicians who can really help patients walk through this process is so important. It's confusing to people who are in medicine, you know, let alone to someone who is newly diagnosed, anxious, you know, overwhelmed, and then you have, you know, 15 different appointments. And, you know, I think at the Cleveland Clinic, we're able to do multidisciplinary visits. And so patients are seeing a number of providers often in the same visit. But, you know, a lot of patients, of course, are taken care of in the community and they're seeing multiple providers at different locations over a long period of time. So patient navigators in our hospitals, as well as in community hospitals, I think is just going to be, you know, so key to helping patients get the care that they need. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's encouraging considering that, you know, if people don't have the right navigation and they miss miss important parts of their therapy, they're not going to do as well. And so it's kind of an important recognition that if you pay a little bit for a navigation and have people get treated the right way, that can only help. Yeah. And I think, you know, certainly Medicare seems to be recognizing that piece of things, which is why it's going to be, you know, part of insurance coverage in the future. I think, you know, that will hopefully drive uh, insurance coverage for, you know, a lot of the other payers as well, and will allow us as well as other hospitals to kind of deliver better care overall. So when you think about care for cervical cancer, what do you think remain the, the biggest barriers? So, I mean, we mentioned kind of the prevention piece. Certainly, I would love to be put out of a job, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, because everyone is getting vaccinated and getting screened appropriately. I mean, that would be ideal. But, you know, the other kind of sad part that I didn't mention with cervical cancer is that treatment really hasn't changed in the last two decades and survival hasn't really changed in the last two decades compared to most other cancers where we've seen, you know, kind of these more dramatic improvements with newer therapies. And so, you know, certainly, especially for our locally advanced and metastatic patients who have unfortunately poor five-year survival rates, you know, really kind of seeing more funding and attention paid to implementing kind of new treatment paradigms that, you know, can hopefully help improve upon the care that we're delivering. Is there anything that you see as being particularly promising in terms of newer therapies? 
You know, in the metastatic and recurrent setting, we've seen some uh, major improvements with the use now of immunotherapy that hasn't played out in the locally advanced setting for some reason. But um, I think, you know, there are more trials that are underway that potentially look promising as well. And so we've had a lot of negative trials. Cervical cancer is, is due for a win. There you go. <laughs> Sometime soon. When we think about specifically on the radiation side, are there any newer techniques or ways to deliver radiation that that seems particularly promising? Yeah, you know, so for a very long time, we have done, you know, kind of this five weeks of radiation with chemotherapy weekly, followed by brachytherapy, um, which is the internal radiation piece of things. One of the things that I'm excited about is the idea of using kind of more hypofractionated or shorter courses of radiation, which, you know, have been very successful in many other sites like rectal cancer, sarcoma, to see if we can decrease the amount of time that patients have to spend on treatment, which again, with a patient population that has a lot of barriers to care in the first place and a lot of young women who often have children at home, you know, taking off eight weeks to be able to do treatment is challenging. So I think that's probably the next thing on the radiation side on the horizon, which will be exciting to see. Well, it looks like you have a great group of people that are being very mindful of what it takes to deliver quality care to these patients and you're doing good work. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having us. Um, you know, it's uh, it's awesome to be part of such a wonderful team. To make a direct online referral to our Tosa Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive a confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. For more podcast episodes, visit our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.